Please be taking out your Bibles tonight and turning to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1. Over the course of the past couple of weeks in particular, we have covered the biblical fact that according to God, the man that he wants and will recognize to serve as an elder in his son's church is going to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence while they are under his roof, 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, and or has at least one faithful believing child once they are out from under his roof and on their own, Titus 1 and verse 6. In other words, as we've covered at length the last two weeks, he must have current tense, must have faithful offspring, or else he cannot be an elder in the Lord's church. And so tonight we're going to continue with our study of the remaining qualities or qualifications which God says are essential that every man must possess who would serve as an elder in his son's church. So as we look at Titus chapter 1, having covered verse 6 last week at length, it's interesting to note in the flow and in the context that when it what comes next in Titus, immediately after God's insistence that an elder must have faithful, believing offspring, notice how he starts the very next verse after that in Titus 1 and verse 7. He starts it with, for a bishop must be blameless. That sound familiar? That ought to sound really, really familiar at this point. This whole idea of blameless or above reproach, whichever your version uses or some other very similar term, you remember that that term blameless or above reproach was the very first requirement that we saw and covered at length in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, which if you need a reminder of that, I encourage you. That's one of the wonderful things about live streaming. You can go back and listen to that. But now, here in Titus chapter 1, he's going back and he's going to expand even further or expound even further upon what he just said about a man's needing to be blameless in Titus 1.6 in Titus 1.7. You know, it's kind of like when he said an elder had to have his household under control in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4, and then in the very next verse, verse 5, he explained why, because if a man can't control his own house, how can he oversee the church of God? He took verse 4 and he said, okay, it's got to be this way, and then he explained it even further in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 3, and it's sort of like that here. Note in Titus 1, 6, and 7, it is not just if a man is blameless, Titus 1.6, but he must be above reproach or blameless. Verse 7, it's not just an if, it's a must. As brothers Roper and Clore emphasize in their notes on this verse, these are qualities every Christian should have. 
This verse begins, verse 7, for the overseer must be. Paul used the word must here as he did in 1 Timothy 3.2. Brothers Roper and Clore go on to say these are not merely suggestions. They continue. Why did Paul say elders in Titus 1.5, plural, and overseer or bishop, singular, in verse 7? Here's why. When talking about the elders of a congregation, the plural term is appropriate. But elders do not meet the qualifications collectively. Each man has to qualify individually. Therefore, when giving the qualifications, the singular term is very appropriate. So let's take a look here at Titus 1.7 as we begin tonight. For a bishop must be blameless. I'm reading from the New King James. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Each elder must be above reproach in these areas. Verse 7. Each elder must be blameless or above reproach insofar as his godly marriage, his godly leadership in the home of his godly offspring, verse 6. Verses 6 and 7 go together. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, and not greedy for money, Titus 1.7. This is what a man has to be in his home life, with his family in particular, as well as everywhere else. And this is, this is one of those things that we need to understand. We understand that Christianity is not something we do on Sundays. We all understand that. We're mature. We get that. Christianity is not something that we do. It's something we are. And because it is what we are, it is what we always are. Whether we're at home, in the church building, at work, at school, we're always Christians. And so, yes, these qualities in verse 7, that he must be blameless, have a lot to do with how he is in the home if he's blameless. Verse 6, that's how it begins, same basic way, without the word must. But he must be these things in his godly leadership of his godly marriage and his godly offspring. For as he is in the home, shall he be in the church and community. Brothers Roper and Clore had this to say. The home is the training ground and the proving ground for leadership in the church. The principle here is similar to that expressed in Jesus' parable of the talents, in which the trustworthy servants were told, you are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 and 23. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. You've been faithful and blameless in the godly leadership of your godly wife and your godly offspring, so I will put you over other godly people. I will give you more responsibility. It's, it's very similar to that. And please notice again what it says in Titus 1.7. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. That's very important, that phrase, as a steward of God. This gives us the reason why he must be blameless. Again, brothers Roper and Clore, 
Paul was ready to share why it is important for an elder to be above reproach. He must be above reproach as God's steward. That term steward means house manager. That term steward has to do with being a house manager. It designates a house manager. And as I think of that, maybe you too, but who's the first person that comes to mind? Joseph, for me. Joseph was put in charge of Potiphar's entire household. He was his house manager. He was trustworthy. He was blameless. And the thing is that elders have been given the responsibility of managing not Potiphar's house, not Pharaoh's house, but they have been put in a position of responsibility of managing God's house, the church, 1 Timothy 3.15. And as scripture says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Because someday, elders will have to give an account for those that they had the stewardship or overseership of, according to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Paul then goes on to explain what is further included in this requirement of being blameless. You may recall back in 1 Timothy 3 as I was introducing this study that one of the commentators there said this, this idea of being blameless, the very first requirement, 1 Timothy 3, 2, that a, a bishop must be blameless, was basically, he said, the key qualification. And everything that followed that showed whether or not he was blameless. And I thought, well, that, that's, pretty good, that, that's a pretty good way to understand that. And so here, too, what we are, are going to see is what is further included in this requirement of being blameless or above reproach. Paul begins in his writing to Titus with five negative characteristics or vices which an elder cannot, must not have. Now, the list is very, very similar to the one in 1 Timothy 3, but here's how we're going to shorten this up. If we've already covered a term in 1 Timothy 3, we're not going to cover it again. We, we already know what it means, and we can go back and watch it. So we're only going to take those terms or phrases where Titus has additional information to give us. Very similar list, but with some different Greek terms and words that mean a little different. Verse 7, an elder must not be self-willed. Must not be self-willed. The Greek is othetes, and it means self-pleasing. He cannot be out to have his own way. As Brother Lonnie Ritchie said, othetes means arrogant and overbearing. It denotes one who selfishly asserts his own will. There's nothing worse than a person in a position of leadership who is a tyrant and only concerned for himself. It cannot be that way. It must not be that way. Because it'll rip the church in two and it won't take long. Brothers Roper and Cloer said it denotes one who dominated by self-interest and inconsiderate of others arrogantly asserts his own will. Let us pray for the Lord to spare the church from leaders like Diotrephes who love to have the preeminence. Third John and nine. You want to see a church leader? who was going to have his own way no matter what? Diotrephes in 3 John 9. Wouldn't even listen to what the apostles wrote. John says, when I get there, I'm going to deal with him. 
An elder must be one who is not dominated by self-interest. Turn to me, keep your finger here, we're coming right back, but turn to me to 1 Corinthians 13. This must describe the man who is an elder. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want the church to grow and to flourish and to be all that God intended for it to be, it must be a man that instead of being self-willed or self-pleasing or concerned with his own way, exhibits the characteristics of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. It says there, love suffers long or is patient and is kind. An elder must be one who is patient and kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not like, well, you know what? I'm smarter than you are, and I'm going to do this my way. Love doesn't do that. Elders can't do that. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. I don't care if you're an elder or a husband or a wife or deacon or brother or sister in the church. This is something that all of us need to be practicing. It's about Jesus Christ first, yourself last, and others in between. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. If you want to see something out of Timothy and Titus, away from them, that needs to apply to those men who are elders, there it is right there in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Next qualification back in Titus. An elder must also not be quick-tempered. The Greek word is argelos. Only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And it means prone to angry. It's a man that gets angry easily. The King James Version says not soon angry. And the Christian Standard Bible says not hot-tempered. But you know, this is another one of those qualities. <laughs> As we talk about these, these are qualities that we're all supposed to have. From the newest convert to the, the longest a tenured member of the congregation or whatever term. These are things that we all should be. It's just in these men that are elders, we see it clearer than in any others. You remember what James said about not being quick-tempered or hot-tempered or soon angry? He wrote that to all of us. In James chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, James wrote this. He said, so then, my beloved brethren, that's brothers, that's sisters, that's new converts, that's decades, that's all he is. I'm in the South. That's y'all. He said, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to so save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James said, every last one of you needs to be very, very careful not to be soon angry, but instead be slow to wrath. These are men who through time and tears and trials and testing and work in the church are known to be men of this caliber. The next three terms we've already covered in our study of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. 
not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And again, if you want to know what those mean and you missed the, the session on that, go back through these lessons and check out the one on 1 Timothy 3 and verse 3. By the way, there will be a list upcoming uh, so that it will make it easier to reference some of these. That brings us to Titus 1 and verse 8. Wherein he gives six positive. In the last he gave five negative. Now he's going to give six positive virtues or qualities or characteristics by comparison. The first one in Titus 1.8. The first must there is hospitable. Again, a term we covered at length when we studied 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. However, the second term in verse 8 is one that we haven't seen before. That term is a lover of what is good. Philagathos. We know phyla or philo means love. Philagathos, a lover of what is good. This man loves the good things of God. It literally means loving goodness. It's another one of those terms. It's used only once in the entire New Testament, and it's right here. It's the only time we see this Greek term. Again, brothers, Roper and Chlor, this is interesting. Listen to this. In the Greco-Roman world, philagathos was used to describe an especially respected and responsible citizen, not just in the church, it was used in that culture to describe an especially respected and responsible citizen. This was a word found frequently on inscriptions in praise of worthy people. An elder's influence should be on the side of anything that is good and godly. We are reminded here of Philippians 4 and verse 8, and we know Philippians 4, 8 through 13 tells us that whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, let your mind dwell on these things. Whatever is from God, this is a man consumed with the good things of God. And, and it's, a, it's a secret, this, this leaning on Jesus, this focusing on the good, this is a secret that has to be learned. Philippians 4.13, I've learned the secret of being content because I keep my mind where it belongs. This is something proven over years, but you see this in these men before they're ever appointed as elders. Remember, these qualifications are the glasses that we put on, God's glasses to see the men that God wants as his elders. The next term is sober-minded or sensible, as the New American Standard puts it. It's from a term that is also seen or that we've also seen and studied before that is the Greek word sophron. We've seen that before. We saw it in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Sometimes it's translated a little different here than it's translated in 1 Timothy 3, 2, but it's, it's the same Greek word. It simply means that an elder must have good sense. He needs to be one who thinks before he acts. You ever done something you wish you'd thought about before you did it? You ever said something you wish you'd thought about a little more before you opened your mouth? An elder is a man who's known. It doesn't mean he's flawless. Doesn't mean that he always says exactly the right thing. We had a sermon this morning about the fact that nobody can be flawless all the time. Remember that, right? Okay, elders can't either. But it's a man that is known for thinking before he speaks or acts. That's the idea. He's sensible, he's sober-minded. And guess what? That's another one of those terms that's supposed to apply to all of us. 
As we also covered when we talked about Sophron, it is used of the older, more mature Christian men in Titus 2.2, and the older or more mature Christian women in Titus 2.5. That, that same term applies to them. They're not all elders. They're not all elders' wives. Any of the older men and women in the congregation, or should I say more seasoned saints in the congregation, those who have been in Christ for a while, they should exhibit this self-controlled, prudent, sensible quality according to Titus 2.2 and 2.5. It's not just for elders. The next three qualities or qualifications are found only in Titus. They are just, holy, and self-controlled. Say, wait a minute, Doug, we just covered self-control. Well, we covered, a lot of these words have very, very similar meanings. The first one, just, is the chaos in the Greek. You know, I've got to take a brief aside here. I can't begin to imagine how many Greek scholars that may watch this are laughing at my pronunciation, okay? But the word is spelled up there, and it's the best I got. The word means, dikaios, means fair, upright, and righteous. Fair, upright, and righteous. Under Strong's outline of biblical usage, it says this. How's that word used in the Bible? Righteous, observing divine laws, upright, righteous, virtuous, keeping the commands of God, used of one whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the will of God. That's what the word means. For such a small little four-letter word, just, it's got a whole big long outline of biblical usage. But it's interesting, this word is used overall in the New Testament 81 times, this Greek word. It's used 81 times in the King James Version of the New Testament. 41 of those times it is translated righteous. 33 of them it's translated just. He must be a just individual, one who seeks to please God and conform his life to the will of God. The next word that we have is holy or devout, depending on your version. That's why I put both there. Hosios means pleasing to God. Brothers Roper and Cloer said an elder's life should be dedicated to pleasing the Lord. When you see men whose lives are devoted to pleasing the Lord, you see it in their family, doesn't mean they're perfect, doesn't mean they're flawless, but their lives are dedicated to serving the Lord, to leading their wife, leading their house, leading their offspring, to follow God, to make it to heaven. When you see them in their business dealings, when you see them out in public, when you interact with them as brothers in the church, this is who they are. This is the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 2.8 where the Apostle Paul said, By divine inspiration I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Again, it's a quality that all of our men should be working for, and women as well. Third term we see in this passage that is new to us, and it is not seen in 1 Timothy 3 or anywhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place when I never began. When I began studying this, I never had any idea there were so many terms that were unique to just these qualifications. It's like, this is unique. The term, in my mind, I want to say egg crates. I don't know how it's pronounced. 
translated here as self-controlled. According to Strong's outline of biblical usage, it means having power over, mastering, controlling, curbing, restraining, controlling oneself. Brothers Roper and Clore say it means having one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. I will not ask our elders out loud. I can only imagine. But there's got to be days your work is so frustrating. You're dealing with people. It's got to be so difficult. It's got to be hard sometimes to just be as patient as you are, as calm as you are, especially when you have people on different sides of different issues and you're trying to be the best godly servant that you can and lead the flock, and you know no matter what you do, somebody's not going to think that it's the right thing. It's got to be difficult. And so it needs to be, it needs to be one who has his emotions and desires under control. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said this Greek adjective signifies the mastery that the elder has over his own emotions and passions. He is a man who restrains himself under every circumstance. In other words, when others are losing control, he maintains his. Doesn't get angry when others are angry. And sometimes in the church, brethren get angry over different things. These are the kind of men, aren't these, as you read these, as you read these qualities, aren't these the kind of men that you always want in the Lord's church everywhere? You think God knew what he was doing? Absolutely. That brings us to verses 9 through 11. Don't have PowerPoint on these, don't need one. Verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> he must be one who holds fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be. There's our word must. They must be stopped. An elder must be a man who, whether it is popular or not, whether it is easy or not, whether it is politically correct or not, whether it is socially acceptable or not, he must be a man who will stand on the word of God and when people are teaching falsehood, he must be one who's willing to stand up and say, no. He must be that because there are people whose mouths must be stopped or shut, who subvert whole household teaching things they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. This is why in 1 Timothy 3.2, we covered this. It said he must be able to teach. It's not just able, it's apt to. It's somebody who wants to teach the truth. It's somebody who has shown that by their willingness to step up and to teach the truth. They're willing to confront error. Whenever there's an opportunity to teach, these men want to teach. They want to let go of the word of God. They want to share the word of God. And they are willing to do so when falsehood is being taught that is going to lead households and souls to hell. Verses 12 through 14. One of them, that is one of these people teaching wrong things, a prophet of their own said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There are always going to be people who are going to want to teach what they want to teach, some messed up doctrine, some perversion of God's word, and listen, our elders are our last line of defense to keep the church on the straight and narrow. These must be men who will confront false doctrine. 
They can't be wishy-washy. Turn to me to Rome. Keep your uh, finger here for a moment. We'll come back close to here. But turn with me to Romans 16. Romans chapter 16. You know, <clears throat> Romans chapter 16, verse 16, is a verse we use a lot in the Church of Christ. We use it because we tell people something along the lines of, we're not only in the phone book, we're in the Lord's book. We are, in the, we are in the Lord. When Paul was referring to the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ, he referred to them as churches of Christ. The churches of Christ have been around for 2,000 years. There's no man-made denomination that's been around that long. In fact, most man-made denominations, at least Protestant denominations, are only about 500 years old. There's only one church in New Testament times, and that was the Church of God. Individual congregations were known as the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. But sometimes we just kind of stop there with that text, and there's so much more to that text, especially relative to our leaders having to stand up against false doctrine, although this is written to everybody. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Very next verse, remember, this was not divided when it was written. Now I urge you, brethren, this is for all of us, but elders especially, need to take heed to this. Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the simple. Those who cause divisions contrary to the doctrine which they had already learned in the mid first century about 60 AD when Romans was written, anybody that said anything contrary to that doctrine that was in the Bible was to be avoided. A number of years ago, I was serving as the evangelist in a congregation that did not have elders. We were in an area that had a lot of liberalism in the church. And so whenever our ladies were going to a ladies' day or our youth were going to a youth rally or anything like that, or especially if we were going to have speakers come there, I would send them this survey, this questionnaire. It's a very basic questionnaire. It said six questions, but you know me, I'm long-winded, so it probably turned into 12 because some of them were like two-part, but whatever. <clears throat> and it was questions like, do you believe that baptism is essential for the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe that instrumental music is acceptable in our praises to God? Pretty basic stuff, right? And I was told by one of the men in that congregation that I had no right to ask those people coming in there those questions. Suffice it to say that didn't go over real well. There's no man belongs in the pulpit in the Lord's church who's teaching his own doctrine. I don't care who he is. I don't care how many letters he's got after his name. I don't care how many books he's written. I don't care what kind of theological degrees he has got. The pulpit needs to be protected at all costs. If the first time that men like Max Licato and Rubel Shelley got into those pulpits and basically said what the Baptists say that one must do to be saved, if those elders in that congregation that night had taken him right out, said, not even let him get outside the door and said, Mr., we're going to have a conversation that is not going to be tolerated in our pulpits, our brotherhood would be a lot stronger in a lot of areas of our country. Elders need to be men who are willing to stand on the truth, period. 
period. They need to be able to refute and teach. In love, yes, yes, yes. In compassion, yes. But without compromise, yes, always. Go back with me to Titus, and then back up a couple of books. <laughs> I missed it a little. First Timothy. That brings us back to the final two requirements that an elder must possess. We've exhausted the list in Titus and almost exhausted the list in 1 Timothy, but we're about to right now. 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7 are the final two. 1 Timothy 3, 6 says, not a novice, and remember, this is one long sentence. It's got the word must right at the beginning of it, verse 2. He must not be a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Now, I love, I love this, the way this is worded, okay? Our New King James Version says puffed up with pride. Puffed up, puffed up. Think of the word, puffed up. The Greek word is typhoo, and it means to raise a smoke, to wrap in a mist, metaphorically to make proud, to puff up with pride, render insolent, to blind with pride or conceit. Puffed up with pride? Uh-huh. Just like blowing up a balloon, just like puffed up with a balloon, just having his ego inflated. This is what happens when you put a man who is too young in the eldership, too young as a Christian, that is. Brother Ritchie says the point is that if a recent convert to Christ were put into the position of a church bishop, he would be blinded by conceit and caused to fall into sin. Take a young man that's been an elder, uh, take a young man that's been a member of the church for five years, put him in as an elder. Even if it looks like he's qualified and you're asking for trouble when there are more qualified men who are a lot older who have proven themselves. You see, these qualifications call upon us as the congregation to recognize from years of working with these men exactly who these men are that God wants as elders in his church. Brothers Roper and Clore said some of us have been acquainted with individuals whose minds have become beclouded and deluded by too much success too soon, often with tragic consequences, and that is true. Proverbs 16, 18 comes to mind. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Final qualification for elders is in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7. It says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Did you notice the book ends? Did you notice the book ends? What was the first requirement? 1 Timothy 3, 2, must be blameless. What is the last requirement? Must have a good testimony amongst those who are outside. Either, either way, he's got to have a good reputation. He's got to be above reproach. Brothers Roper and Clore, one final time, say this. The list of qualifications began with a good reputation and closes with the same thing. The first requirement above reproach or blameless in 1 Timothy 3.2 probably has to do with a good reputation in the congregation. While this last one in 1 Timothy 3.7 has more to do with a man standing in the community. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. 
This is not to say that he compromises the truth so that all men speak well of him. This is key to our understanding here. If a man is doing everything that God wants him to do to the absolute best of his ability, is he going to have a good reputation with everybody in the community? Not on your life. Not going to happen. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. For thus they treated the false prophets before you. If a man is doing everything that God wants him to do, he's serving God, he's, he's living for God, his family's a godly family, he's going to church, he's doing all of these things that God wants him to do. There are going to be some people in your society and community that are not going to like that man at all. They're going to resent him. Hard. So this isn't talking about that. This is not to say that he compromises the truth so that all men will speak well of him, Luke 6, 26. Rather, it reflects the way he treats others. Whether or not he is a man of his word and other matters that affect the way people think of him. He is so well thought of in the community that if someone were to attack his character, no one would believe it. I love that. Shouldn't we all be striving for that? Men, women, all of us. That if somebody comes along and says, hey, let me tell you about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, did you know? And the person says, <laughs> now, I know sister so-and-so, and, and I know that ain't right. Isn't that what we should all be striving for? I had that problem once in the church. Had one sister come to me, and she said, sister so-and-so did this and this and this and this. And I, just, <laughs> I looked right at her, and I said, <laughs> I didn't say it with a giggle. I was more respectful than that, tactful. But I said, I know sister so-and-so. She didn't say that. Isn't that the kind of reputation you want? So that even if somebody says something about you, person can look who really knows you, works with you, done business with you, you're honest, you've got integrity, you've got sincerity, and say, I, I know that man and I don't believe you. That's what we're talking about here. Paul also gave the reason for this qualification, so that man will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Reproach comes upon a person because of an act that results in disgrace. An elder often has a high profile in the community. If he falls into reproach, it not only hurts him, but brings reproach on the church and does damage, often irreparable damage to the cause of Christ. How many times have you tried to reach out to somebody and they, they're all for it, and they're, they're kind of willing to talk with you about the Bible and stuff. And they say, well, where do you go? And you say, well, I go up here to the church. Oh! Oh, yeah, you're one of them. Forget it. 30 years ago, I knew this person, X, Y, Z. Oh, yeah, no. No, I want nothing to do with that place. Is that possible? You all heard something like that at some time or another? We don't want to be that person that somebody says, oh, no, I ain't going to that church because I know that person. Instead, we want to be the kind of people that, that when we're talking to folks, I had an opportunity to talk with a man here a while ago. We gave one of the food baskets to And he says, well, I used to work here, and, and I knew, and I said, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a good man. Well, do you know so-and-so? Yeah, yeah, I know him. He's, well, then why don't you come in? I'm sure they'd love to see you, you know? That's what we all should have. Every last one of us. Teenagers, you're not exempt from this. You're building your reputation every day just like the rest of us are. Finally, brothers Roper and Clore say the snare of the devil is the trap set by the devil to try to, to ensnare the church leader. See chapter 6 and verse 9 and 2 Timothy 
If the devil cannot discredit the message, he does his best to discredit the messenger. I don't know how many times I've seen that happen. You talk with somebody, you study with somebody, they can't refute what the word says. It's black and white. But when they can't discredit the message, what are they going to do? They've got two options. They can either say, I'm totally wrong and totally messed up, and I'm going to stay that way, which most people won't do. Or they're going to look at the message you bring and say, you're the problem. That's not just limited to elders, but every church leader and every Christian. So these need to be men that are above reproach. Honest, sincere reproach. Anybody can be charged with anything. Our Lord was charged with a lot of things, but none of them were true. And so that brings us to an end of the list of qualifications that an elder must meet in order to serve, in order to be recognized by God as an elder in his son's church. <clears throat> if a church of Christ does not match up to the church of Christ in this book, is it a church of Christ? No, because this book defines what the church of Christ is. And it's just like a, a, a dictionary for the church of Christ. And if you can see a place that's labeled Church of Christ and it doesn't match up to this, then it's not one, no matter what their sign says. And the thing we need to be careful of in selecting elders is that we always want to go by God's definition of what those men should be, despite our own human wisdom that may lean in another direction. And so while this brings us to the end of the list of qualifications that an elder must meet in order to be recognized by God as an elder in his son's church, this is still not quite the end of our elders and deacons study, which we will continue next Sunday night, Lord willing. But there is one point I want to make before I give the invitation. <clears throat> Over the next two weeks, my current plan is that the bulletin articles are going to be incredibly relevant to our study to our selection of elders. And so I would like to encourage everybody at home as well as everybody here, take five minutes when the bulletin comes out, please, and read the article if you have the time or can make the time or can find the time. It is just as important as a lot of these words that I put forward in this study. So just a thought there. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a member of God's church, why? That's a question I got, why? If you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you truly believe the Bible is the Word of God, that you believe Jesus was raised from the dead, why not become His? If He loved you that much, why not become His? All you've got to do is be willing to turn to God, and that's an awesome thing, isn't it, church? I, I love the fact that God allowed me to turn to Him, like we covered this morning. You turn to God, that is repent, be willing to confess before men that you're a Christian, becoming people with these qualities, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Then rise up to walk the rest of your life following him. If you haven't done that, and you know you need to, why haven't you? And if you don't know you need to, and you say, man, that, I really need to study that more, come talk to us. We'll study with you. Love to study with you. Tonight, if you have a need of any kind to be baptized into Christ for the prayers of the church, for Bible study, anything that we can do to help you tonight, please come right now as we stand and as we sing. <clears throat>